Okay, well, let's get into the Word of God for this morning. We are continuing in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the second part of a series in that chapter that I started last week called Out of Here. <laughs> this is Out of Here Part 2. And as you know, we've been studying all about the rapture of the church. Um, this is an event that, that is uh, marked by Jesus Christ calling his church to meet him in the air. It involves the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, resurrection of saints who have previously died. And it also involves simultaneously the translation of living believers into glorified bodies as we are taken up, snatched up violently. This is where we get this rapture word. It comes from the Latin raptus, which comes from the Greek harpazo. We looked at all of that last week. And in this sudden act, the church is taken off the earth and brought to the Lord in the air. What a surprise for the rest of the earth. And um, from that moment, we are with Jesus Christ in the air, in, in heaven. Before that day when he will return to earth with his saints to reign and to rule. And in the course of our discussion last week, we distinguished clearly the rapture as an event versus the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture, as I just described, is the church being taken up to meet Jesus in the air. He does not step upon the earth during the rapture. And then the second coming is when Jesus comes out of heaven at the end of the tribulation period, which we're going to be talking about today. He's, he comes out of heaven with his saints and he comes to earth bodily to earth, visible to all of the earth. Two distinct events, and we saw that last time. Now today, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the placement of the rapture relative to the most significant milepost, perhaps in all of human history. Well, maybe the first coming of Jesus Christ might be that, but that, that event is the, is the tribulation period. And what people want to know concerning the rapture is, where does the rapture fall relative to the tribulation? Because as we're going to see in a few minutes here, the tribulation is a period of judgment, the likes of which the earth has never known. And so we want to, we, no man knows the day or the hour of when the rapture is going to happen. But we will know the season that it will happen in if we are careful students of the word of God. And so we're going to look at where the rapture falls relative to the tribulation, and that's going to require us to delve a little bit into the tribulation, and I hope you'll bear with me for that. And then the second thing we're going to look at this morning, and this is very important because I don't know about you, but when I, when I read something in Scripture that's very impactful, I, I want to know why is the Lord telling me that? Why does the Lord want me to know that? And I believe there are at least three reasons why the Lord wants you to know about the rapture and when exactly it happens. And we're going to look into that. So if you would, please stand with me. Now, we're going to look at two passages this morning. One is the passage we looked at last week. And the other, and that's, by the way, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But later in the Bible study, we're also going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. But for right now, we're going to read together... Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 13 through 18 as we did last week. Here's what it says. This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, 
lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a, what a comfort it is indeed to know, Lord, that you will not leave us orphans. You will not leave us uh, in the miry clay, Lord. You are, you are coming for your church and you will take us off this earth, Lord, to meet you in the air. And we will forever be with you after that time. And Lord, the prayer of our heart is Maranatha, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would give us clarity. Lord, that you would give me your words. That you would purify my heart so that nothing would issue forth from it. But that which you want your people to hear this morning, Father, bless us with the presence of your spirit and the power of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to talk for some minutes now about the tribulation. And last week, at the end of the Bible study of last week, I took you through, in in rather summary fashion, the famous Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. This was a prophecy that the angel Gabriel, at the Lord's command, gave specifically to the prophet Daniel. And what it was, was a panoramic view of the future of the Jewish nation. And it had a definite starting point. Uh, It had a definite duration. The duration was 70 weeks or 70 groupings of seven years, total 490 years. The beginning point we saw, the issuance of an edict by the Persian king Artaxerxes for the captivity, the Jewish captivity, to go back into the land and to rebuild Jerusalem. And then 483 years would transpire until the point at which Jesus Christ presents himself as Messiah, the king, and he would be cut off. And that cutting off, of course, is that Jesus was crucified. And then there's presumably a gap of undetermined length before a final seven-year period is identified in that prophecy. And that that seven-year period begins with the prince who shall come, clear reference as we looked at last time, to Antichrist. Antichrist will be on the scene and he will make a covenant for seven years, for one week as described in Daniel's prophecy, or seven years. And we know that in the midpoint of that seven years, he breaks the covenant. But the beginning of that seven years is, is Antichrist making that particular covenant. That last week of Daniel's 70 weeks is one and the same with what we know as as the tribulation period. Here is Jesus' description of that period found in his famous discourse known as the Olivet Discourse given on the Mount of Olives, which we will be at in uh, just about a week's time. And here's what Jesus said concerning this last week of Daniel. He said, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So not only up till Jesus' time, but right up to our time and beyond. 
And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, to be sure that we don't get confused, we know something else Jesus said in another passage. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, in that context, Jesus is simply talking about the hardships that we as people in a fallen world suffer every day. Diseases, death of loved ones, loss of businesses, difficult relationships, wars in the world. All of these things are difficulties for us that are referred to as tribulations but they are not the result of judgment by God they are the result of simply living in a sin saturated and broken world Jesus is not talking about that kind of tribulation in Matthew 24 he is talking about a whole nother thing he is talking about judgment that has been directed by God for specific purposes that we are about to uncover in a moment here The tribulation referred to here, very different from the kind of trouble that we just experience as human beings on the earth. This is is what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. He said, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So clearly, this is something that is extraordinary in all of human history. It has a level of trouble and agony and and death and calamity, the likes of which no one in the history of the world has ever seen. Uh, This is why uh, it's known as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being another name for Israel. It's a time of Israel's trouble, as Jeremiah said. It's the day of the Lord that we saw, that we'll see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. It is something else. Now, let's talk about the the different... There are three classes of people that we're going to be addressing this morning. And two of them very specifically in the context of the tribulation. And God's purpose in allowing the tribulation to happen uh, is very much tied to who it's going to be subject to. Now, when we... Think about the tribulation, and by the way, you can read all about it between chapter 6 and chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. You can find complete studies of all of those chapters on our website. You can find the series, the Revelation series. I think it's been done twice or three times it might be on there. But if you look at the most recent one, which I think we did in 2019, you can get all the detail. But when we look at the severity of it, we have to ask the question. The question is often asked. If we serve a loving God, why would he ever allow such a thing to happen on the earth? Something that kills so many people. And to understand that, you have to understand who is going to be subject to that terrible calamity. And so, the first of the three groups of people will be talking about the Jews. The Jews, as we know from Scripture a called out people, a people that God selected, starting with the progenitor of the nation, Abraham. He chose Abraham not because there was anything to distinguish Abraham as being more righteous, more godly, or anything like that. It was simply God's sovereign choice. And from there, a nation was built, and they were to be a people 
that ultimately were going to be God's ensign or his banner to all of the peoples of the earth, that they would be special in many, many ways. And we'll be talking a lot about that with the people who travel there next week. They would be those to whom God would give the law. They would be the codifiers and the transmitters of scripture. It would be from their nation that Messiah, the savior of the world, would come. And God gave them a very conditional covenant, which you find in the book of Deuteronomy, that speaks about the intense and massive blessings that would be bestowed upon the nation if they would track according to his commands. And then it gave a considerable number of curses, shall we say, or difficulties that they would experience uh, if they didn't. And of course, we know, and we saw this, this verse last time, Romans eleven twenty five. We know that because the Jewish nation ultimately got drawn into false gods, they got drawn into idolatry, they got drawn into materialism, they pretty much forsook the God who called them out. God allows what the Apostle Paul calls in Romans chapter 11, blindness to be occasioned on the Jewish people. Blindness to what? Blindness to Jesus as Messiah. Now he says blindness in part has happened to the Jews because there are as we know, many Messianic Jews within the greater church. But as a nation, they pretty much have now this blindness over their eyes until what the Lord says, the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to God now doing a different work. He set aside the work he was doing with the Jewish people, set it aside, didn't end it, just simply gave it a pause. And now he's doing another work through the church And that's what he means when he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, why then we know that the Lord is going to take us out. We're going to talk about that. The Lord's going to take the church off the earth. And then what we're going to have is that seven years of tribulation. And the Jews as a nation are going to go through that. And we're going to talk about why in a moment. Now, the second group of people um, that were talking about that's going to be subject to this tribulation is referred to in the bible as the nations and when you see the word or the the phrase the nations what's being referred to is all of the rest of the peoples of the world that are not part of the jewish nation and so if we look over the centuries at the nations we know that out of those nations the church has been called But when you look at the size of the church relative to the totality of the nations, it's only a tiny fraction. The vast majority of human beings that fall into that category of the nations have had an attitude towards God that ranges from indifference to deception to downright hostility. And God has done a number of things. You see this in the opening verses of, um, of Hebrews, for example, there's many ways in which God has revealed himself to the world, including natural revelation. The invisible, I prayed it a little while ago, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the things that are made so that we are without excuse. But most especially, God's revelation of himself to the world has come through Jesus Christ. And particularly for people living in this day and age, there's no corner of the earth that we cannot reach with the gospel because of the internet, because of modern travel, and because the church, sectors of the church have a heart to bring the gospel to the world. 
And in spite of all that, the vast, vast majority of the world rejects the only provision that God has made for their sins, Jesus Christ. So what do we have? We have the Jewish nation, which has not yet become what God intends them to be because they've been drawn off through idolatry, through materialism, through secularism, through many different things. And then we have the nations, God-rejecting people. So knowing those two groups, we look at God's purpose for the tribulation in the first place. And the scripture clearly tells us that. Pertaining to the Jews, God's word tells us that there has never been a time when he decided that he was done with the Jews. And it breaks my heart that within the greater church, there is a strain of theology known as replacement theology, which, which holds that God is done with the Jews. They had their chance. They blew it. God's done with them. And now the promises that we would see in the Old Testament that God makes to the Jewish nation has now been directed towards the church, the church becomes the new Israel, the spiritual seed of Abraham, which has been misconstrued, by the way. This is not true. God, from the very beginning, has a plan for the Jewish people. But there's something that has to happen before they are all that God has called them to be. And you might consider it refinement. Refinement in the way that we refine metals. Refining metals is a very violent, hot affair. Because if you want to get gold to that 24 karat 99.9999 purity of gold, you need to put that metal into a, a, a crucible of some kind and you need to heat it to a very high temperature. And what typically happens is the impurities of the metal rise to the liquid metal. It's skimmed off. That's called dross. What you have left is pure, pure gold. Well, this is the kind of imagery that the prophets of God have used to describe what God needs to do with Israel. And he's going to be doing it actually in the tribulation period. If you would, turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 22, for example. Uh, in my Bible, that passage is, uh, the passage I'm about to read, is, <laughs> is subtitled, Israel in the Furnace. Okay? So in, in Ezekiel chapter 22, picking up in verse 19, this is what we read. The word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. You see, there's that word dross. In other words, it's impure. It's impurity. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have become dross from silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As man gathers silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in its midst." As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so shall you be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury upon you. Similarly, if you move a few more uh, pages over in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah also speaks to this in Zechariah 13, uh, verses 8 and 9, where we read, It shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds two in it shall be cut off and die, 
but one third shall be left in it. I will bring the one through the one third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Clearly, the picture we get from Ezekiel and also from Zechariah is that the Lord has a plan for how he's going to refine the nation of Israel. The chilling news from Zechariah is it's going to cost two-thirds of the nation are going to perish in that refinement process. But the one-third that comes through will declare, he is my God. Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Zechariah's prophecy also tells us that when when Jesus is coming to the earth, they're, they're going to they're going to mourn as as though for a firstborn son. What are they going to mourn? They're going to mourn the fact that that through evil intent, they crucified their Messiah. But Jesus is going to come and refine them, and then they will be what will be left will be pure gold. So that's. The purpose of the tribulation vis-a-vis the Jews. What about the nations? Well, the nations that will be on the earth when the tribulation begins, that is the peoples who are not part of the Jewish nation, these will be people who have rejected repeatedly and decisively the only provision God has made for our sins, Jesus Christ. And you know, in several places the Bible tells us that when we, are, when we are hardened in our hearts, when we are purposed in our hearts to reject God, to reject God in spite of numerous revelations of him, despite numerous opportunities of grace and mercy and grace and mercy, when we continue in doing that, what we end up finding is that God finally will give them over to that which they're insisting, which is life without God. And so... When the nations ultimately are entering the tribulation, they are people who have resolved in their mind that they will not bow their knee to Christ. And if you doubt this, um, Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 tells us something very revealing about the hearts of human beings during the tribulation. Now, consider this, this this verse revelation 9 20 it comes after the calamities of the seven seal judgments and six of the seven trumpet judgments where approximately half of the population of the earth has now been destroyed by these unbelievable judgments upon the earth which you can read about through the first nine chapters of revelation and this is what we learn after all of this calamity and death This is what's revealed about the heart of people in verse 20, Revelation 9. But the rest of mankind, that is those that didn't perish in all those judgments, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can can neither see nor hear nor walk. You know, I don't know about you, but... If you follow the news at all, and you don't have to follow it religiously, just casually. If you don't see this world getting darker and darker and darker, you're simply not paying attention. The lyrics of, of songs, 
the visuals on TV and movies, the themes of movies these days. If you go like to Fandango and you look, okay, what's playing right now? I guarantee you half the movies will have some kind of occultic, dark theme somewhere woven in. Disney has completely gone off the rails. The amount of of occultic darkness that comes through the entertainment that's churned out of that, that grist mill is shocking. One of the performances I learned later on the Grammys, uh, one of the artists, literally a satanic presentation on, on that show that's broadcast, of course, all through this country and around the world. These things are happening as a precursor to the, what's described there in verse 20 of chapter 9 of Revelation. So what, what, what do we have? For all the reasons... Uh, that we see here between what God's trying to do with the Jewish people and what he's trying to bring onto the earth by God rejecting people. We see a purpose here. We see a purpose, um, a time when God's wrath needs to be issued. We talked about this in the men's Bible study last week about the Lord's chastisement. There's chastisement to those he loves like sons and daughters. But then there's a judgment Time And this is it. It is a time of God's wrath. This is what we read in Revelation 6, verses 15 and 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come And who is able to stand? So clearly here, the tribulation is categorized in scripture as a time of God's wrath. As a time of God's wrath. Now, why do I take you through that since we're talking about the rapture? Well, if we want to understand where the rapture occurs, because the rapture only applies to that third group of people I identified, which is the church. And so why would I bring up the tribulation when we're talking about the rapture? Why? It's because every Christian who's ever been minted wants to know where that rapture occurs relative to the time of God's wrath, relative to the time when all these catastrophic things are taking place on the earth. Oh, my goodness. Do we go through that? Okay. So here's the reason why. I believe that the church is taken off the earth. The rapture occurs before the tribulation starts. Our church would be categorized as pre-trib, pre-millennial. Pre-trib means the church is taken out of the way before the uh, the tribulation. And pre-millennial means Jesus Christ comes back to earth bodily to reign and to rule in a literal 1,000-year kingdom. Okay, That's what we stand for as a church eschatologically. So, so let me just broad brush the, different, the array of different views about when the rapture happens relative to the tribulation. As I, as I mentioned, we are, like many churches, we are considered pre-trib. Church is taken out of the way before the tribulation, pre-trib. There are others within the greater body of Christ who hold the position that the church is taken out in the rapture at the midpoint of the tribulation. So the tribulation seven years long at the three and a half year mark, 
the church is raptured then. And the justification for that is that we'll see in a few minutes here that the second half of the tribulation is called in one of the, the verses of Revelation, uh, the great tribulation. And so the, holding on to that notion that, well, that's the great tribulation, so we'll be taken out before that, but we will go through the first half. That's mid-tribulationism. And then there's a, another view, which I think has the least support, uh, the post-tribulation view of the rapture. The post-tribulation view, as the name suggests, says that the church goes through the entirety of the tribulation, and then after it's completed, it's taken off the earth. And then, quite surprisingly, it's returned immediately, I guess, with Jesus coming to the earth uh, in the second coming. So you see there's some obvious problems with that. Um, but here, here is a, a bevy of reasons. There's probably more, but these are the ones that I think jump out as we look at Scripture. The first and best reason that the church will not go through the tribulation, not one day of it, is that the scripture tells us clearly that the church is not appointed to the wrath of God. As we've already seen, the tribulation in chapter 6, which is at the very beginning of the tribulation, is described as the day of God's wrath. The church is described throughout scripture. Jesus refers to it this way. The, you know, it's referred to throughout scripture as the bride of Christ. The paradigm of marriage is Christ in the church. Do, do you think for even a second that Jesus wants to provide us with an example where the bride is subject to the wrath of the groom? Of course not. And this is why... When we started in, in 1 Thessalonians, in the very first chapter, if you just flip a page over and look there, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians tells us, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who has raised from the dead even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Looks pretty, yeah, looks pretty, pretty obvious. Um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to get there in a little bit, but just look at verses 9 and 10 of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, and whether we wake or we sleep, we should live together with him. Clearly stating, we are not appointed to his wrath. He has saved us from, our, from wrath. In the first couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we get the seven letters to the seven churches. And the seven churches were actual churches of the first century. But scholars see clearly that the messages to those seven churches represent messages that apply to the churches throughout different periods of time in history, but also refer to different kinds of churches, different characters or character of, of churches. And when he addresses uh, in chapter 3 of Revelation, the church at Philadelphia, fly, eagles, fly, should all be rooting for the eagles today. I just want to throw that in. 
Gosh, I almost did that at the prayer after worship, and I thought, that would be so inappropriate. <laughs> That's one of those times when the Holy Spirit saves you from, you know, sin, uh, especially if you're a Kansas City fan. But anyway, um, <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia, also known as the faithful church. Listen to what he says there. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There is no other moment of trial or tribulation that has ever simultaneously affected the entire world to anything approaching the magnitude of the tribulation. Clearly, Jesus is referring to those who are, who are faithful and persevere, that he will keep them from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole earth. We are not appointed to the wrath of God. The tribulation is a time of wrath. There is purpose behind bringing the Jewish nation through it. It's the refinement that Ezekiel and Zechariah talked about. There is a purpose in bringing judgment upon nations who have rejected God because they have hardened their hearts, as we saw in Revelation, and therefore there's nothing left for them but judgment. But the church... There's no purpose in the, in the tribulation that applies to the church, okay? Now, obviously, both the pre, post-trib view of the rapture and the mid-trib view of the rapture leaves the church on the earth for either portion or all of the tribulation. As I mentioned, in the first half of the tribulation, 50% of the world perishes, And perishes directly as a result of the wrath of God. This is not appointed to the church. And then in the second, the second half of the tribulation doesn't start until the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. And so the church is already in heaven. And we're going to see why I, I say that with such confidence. Now, there's another reason why the church is not appointed to God's wrath, therefore will not be on the earth during the, the tribulation period. And it is, it is uh, bolstered by a doctrine known as the doctrine of imminency. Imminency, if we're referring to an event and we say that event is imminent, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's immediate in the immediate future. What it simply means is that it can happen at any time because there is no preceding event that must happen before it happens. And this is something that is always associated with the rapture. Even back in the first century, the way Paul and other apostles and people spoke about the rapture was that they believed they could be raptured at any time. That the Lord was coming for them any moment in their lifetimes. This is why, frankly, that the the Thessalonians... Uh, begged on Paul to explain this concept because they had relatives who already had died. And they were concerned that when the Lord came for the church, those dead relatives wouldn't, wouldn't get a ride out. And this is why Paul explained what he does there in 1 Thessalonians 4. But this doctrine of imminency is pretty clearly stated in the first 11 verses of Uh, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. So I want to read those with you right now and see if you don't understand from these verses how the Lord has, has created the expectation that at any time we could be taken out of the way. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that, that uh, I should write you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, this is the day of the Lord is that period of time that begins with the church being taken out of the way. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pangs upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons and light of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Now, in this passage, how does he describe the rapture? He describes it in terms of a thief who comes in the night. In their time, that was common. In our time, it's not common. Do you realize that thieves... Burglars at our time, in our time mostly come between 10 and 3 in the afternoon. But not in their time. Things had to work in the dark. And so a thief at night would come unexpectedly. It would not be something that you would have pre-warning for. They didn't have cameras that are attached to the internet and you'd get a buzz on your phone and, oh gosh, someone's approaching my driveway. Nothing like that. A thief in the night was an unexpected and and not welcomed event. That is the way in which the rapture is described here. Now think about the pre-trib, or I'm sorry, the mid-trib and post-trib views of the rapture. You can compute to the day the midpoint of the tribulation. It's even given to us in Scripture. You can also compute to the day the, the end of the tribulation once it starts. The, thus, if the rapture were, were to occur in either the midpoint or the end of the tribulation, the doctrine of imminency, which is more or less laid out here in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, is out the window. Because the Lord never intended the rapture to be an event that anyone would know when it's coming. No man knows or woman knows the day or the hour. And so... Um, the mid-trib and post-trib views don't really work with that because it would be too predictable. Now, there's another passage that really folds into this, and uh, it's actually going to be subject of when we start our study in, in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So I'm going to draw your attention to it now, but we'll come back to it when we're in that portion of Scripture when we go into 2 Thessalonians. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we actually get a clear description of when Antichrist comes on the scene. And we know that tribulation can't start until Antichrist is on the scene because the beginning point of the tribulation is Antichrist entering into that covenant. So look at verses 3 through 8 with me of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's what we read. By the way, I'm going to be teaching from this passage 
in that prophecy conference coming up in Burlington on March the 31st, April the 1st. Um, and also um, Ken Michael from Olive Tree Views is speaking there. Uh, if you want to get uh, a seat in that conference, there's a link in the Stuff to Know also on the website where you can, uh, it, it's, it's free, uh, but you got to have a ticket. So you gotta, you got to register. But anyway, here's what it says. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, we're talking about the, the, the day of the Lord, will not come unless a falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So it's speaking there about um, falling away, which is the apostasy of the greater church, which I'll talk about at that conference. And the son of perdition revealed, son of perdition, another name for Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, capital H, who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now let me just quickly... Uh, well, let me finish it. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, what we have here is that something has to happen before Antichrist comes onto the scene, as we see there. And here's what it's described. He says, um, for the mystery of lawless... Oh, wait a minute, let me make sure I'm, I'm in the right spot. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, verse 7. Only he, and it's capitalized, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, Bible scholars looking at this, putting the pieces together, what's the restraining force on the earth? The, the Holy Spirit working in the church. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not going to take the Holy Spirit out of the way because the Holy Spirit is God. So he is omnipresent. But the Holy Spirit's presence in the hearts of believers is the restraining force. You may not think your, Christian, your Christian walk is all that significant in the overall scheme of all of Christendom and, and saving people and all that, but it is. Because each one of us, as a vessel of the Holy Spirit, we, we all have that, that restraint against evil in our lives. And collectively, we represent a restraint, a, a drag on evil in the world we basically are something that god uses to keep all hell from breaking loose on the earth but what we see here in this passage is the holy spirit as as embodied in the in the believers will be taken out of the way what what would cause that to happen the rapture the rapture will occur. That will be the removal of that restraining force of all of these vessels, these earthen vessels that contain the Holy Spirit of God. And once that is out of the way, then the son of perdition is revealed. And then he's free to begin the seven year, the last seven years by signing that covenant. Okay? So for these reasons, we're not appointed to, to the wrath of God. Those other views put us squarely in the wrath of God. The doctrine of imminency, that the, the, the rapture should be something that could happen at any time without warning. And the fact here that the Lord clearly tells us that the restraining force that is the Holy Spirit working in the church is removed before Antichrist can come on the scene, which means before the tribulation can even start. 
These are very compelling theological points against any other view but pre-trib. Now, finally, and we'll, we'll conclude here in a moment because I apologize, we're a little over here. Um, why does God want you to know this? Ah, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. It'll all pan out in the end. It'll, it'll, it'll all work. Well, you know, why do we care? Well, God wants us to know this, first of all, to give you, his bride, comfort, comforting things. As a husband, when I'm in my right mind and in the Holy Spirit, I want to say things comforting to my wife. I don't want to upset my wife. I like to eat, and she's a good cook. No, <laughs> not for that reason. I, want, I love my wife. I want her to have peace. My job is to be the provider of peace, provision, and protection. Jesus is a way better groom than me. He wants to to comfort us. Look at verse 18 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, after he describes the the rapture, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you think for a moment that 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 statement would be made to a people who are going to go through any of the tribulation? By the way, uh, read chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation, and then comfort one another with these words. You're going to have a hell of a time. No, that would be no comfort whatsoever. Uh, look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, as we're doing right now, just as you also are doing. The Lord wants you to know so that what you're looking for is not calamity and antichrist. You are looking with eagerness for Jesus Christ. Because that's the next thing you'll see in your eschatological timeline. Second reason why Jesus wants you to know these things. It is a spur to holy living. We know the end and we win. We know the goodness of God to deliver us out of the wrath to come. Doesn't that make you want to live a holy life? Don't you want to magnify and glorify God in your life so that others will see your good works and give glory to God in heaven? That's our mission. That's why we're here. We are here to show Christ to the world. And when they see Christ, hopefully they'll want to be with him. And our holy lives is the first gospel that anyone is ever going to receive. They're not going to hear the one you're telling them or reading them until they see it in you. And this this knowledge of what's to come is a spur to holy living. And then finally, this news should give you a sense of urgency. I don't know about you, but I got people in my life that I love dearly, and they're not saved. And when you read through the details of the tribulation, I don't want to think for a moment that anyone that I love would go through that. In fact, I don't want to think for a moment that anyone would go through that. I have enemies that I don't want to go through that. Not a lot of enemies, by the way. I don't want, don't want to overstate that. Unless you folks know something, I don't know. <laughs> but, but when you see the details of this period of time, when you see the suffering, the calamity, heavens, when I just see what's going on now, I was so heartbroken that a young lady, 14-year-old girl in school got beat up in the hallway of her school and it so demoralized her, and then all the videos posted on Facebook to humiliate her, she took her life. And that happens countless times in this country. People need Christ. 
They need Christ so badly. This world needs Christ so badly. And we don't have a lot of time. I mean, I, I wouldn't be out on Franklin Street with a sandwich board saying, get right or be left right now. But I believe that. I believe the time is short. And so we should have a sense of urgency. We should want to live a holy life. We should have the comfort of knowing Jesus Christ is taking care of his bride because he loves his bride. And you are his bride. So be comforted. This is good news. But it's the kind of good news that makes you want to hold your kids close, pour a lot of Jesus into them, tell the world. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and its truth and the comfort that it indeed brings to us, Lord. You are so good to provide for us. And Lord, it breaks our heart that judgment, the likes of the, revel- uh, the, likes of the tribulation, has to happen. But we know, Lord, you're perfectly just, gracious, and merciful. And you are the definition of love. And so, Lord, we completely Trust and have faith in your plan, your perfect plan for the history of humanity. And we simply pray two things, Lord. Use us to draw others to you, Lord. Use us in the way you see fit. And Lord, come quickly. Those are the prayers of our heart today. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.